Greetings, Ski Racing Tribe, and welcome to another edition of Tips and Tales, where our heads are in the World Cup, but our ears are always to the snow for anything alpine. We will cover the races, the news, and the newsmakers. I'd like to welcome in Scott. Hi, Scott. Hello. I'm Steve Perino. And this week on the podcast, we've got two interviews for you. One from Brandon Dykstra House, who did a little work with Lindsey Vaughn when Vaughn left Europe after winning a Super G, then sitting out the Super G the following day. Uh, so we've got some insights from him as to where she was when she came home. I also talked to one Urban Planasek. Been doing a lot of heavy lifting, Scott, while you've been sunning yourself. What have you been doing? Uh, I have another job. So, uh, I don't necessarily have time during the week for all these interviews. They seem amazing. <laughs> Do you remember Urban Planasek? I don't remember him. Uh, I have met him. Apparently, we competed against each other uh, in the World Junior Championships. World Junior Championships, 1987. Five. Five. Okay. Uh, he's, the, he's a Slovenian. He has, since 2010, been the head men's coach for the Russian team. And if you watched the race recently in Vengen, there was Russian, uh, Russian Pavel Triktev, who made it to the podium. First ever Russian or anyone from USSR. So first ever Russian slash Soviet to make it to a podium in the Super Combined. Uh, we also touched a little bit on their situation with uh, doping and the ban, and also what's happening in the world of, of Russian skiing and development. It's a very large country, but as far as Alpine goes, it's very small. So we touched on multiple topics there. But before we get into those interviews, and the one from Dijkstra House you want to stick around for, we'll give it to you up top, and then we'll give you the one from Urban Planasek in the second half of the show. Let's go into the recap. You with the men what's been happening of late that's caught your eye uh well at this point it's pretty hard to say anything other than marcel hirscher um he is able to win races even when he makes big mistakes the gs and adelboden he made a big mistake on the last pitch and then somehow seemed to do like a 2500 down pound squat <laughs> And to pull it out. I think and, you're underestimating. Yeah, it, it was thousands. It was like having an elephant climb on your back, and it looked like it was nothing to him. Um, at the bottom of a course, a really demanding course, and he beat the field both days in slalom and giant slalom. He seems a bit unbeatable right now. You have Marcel on the on the men's side and Schiffen on the women's side, and they are just crushing tech. Um, and I think right now Henrik Kristofferson seems extremely frustrated because he just can't seem to beat him no matter what he does and that and it's hard when you watch someone make mistakes and then win so Marcel Hirscher dominated Nadelboden and that's the main takeaway from that race like he is amazing right now and then we moved on to Vengen and we had the super combined uh, which is our favorite event on the World Cup not and Victor Mouvat John Day uh, from France, won his first World Cup when he won the combined in Vengen, and it's it's kind of cool to see. Actually, he was really fast a couple years ago, uh, and he's sort of been hit or miss for the last little bit, uh, mostly miss. He hasn't. We haven't really even seen him much in the top ten, uh, and then he suddenly wins a combined. So it was 
Uh, it's kind of cool to see, and it'll be. Uh, I, I gotta jump in there because I think the, the combined because it's it's very hard to sit through all of it. Like there's a lot of window dressing, and you don't really get to the good stuff without some patience. Yeah. But there's something charming about it too because you get these people, these surprise people that do well in both disciplines. And Mufa Jandes, this guy, he's the kind of blue-collar workaday guy in the World Cup that's been consistent. And to see him kind of break through and have that moment, I kind of wonder if it's going to affect other parts of his skiing. But that is the part that I do like. And Trikachev getting on the podium, I enjoyed that. It just took a while to get to the climax, if right. you will. And Peter Phil won the title by finishing on the podium, uh, and he seemed pretty excited about winning the title, and he had a pretty funny quote where he said, yeah, there's only two events in this, and it's kind of strange to win a title, but in 20 years, my kids won't remember when I tell my kids I won three titles, no one will remember that there was only two races. So it's pretty funny, um, and everyone seems, you know, it's it, we, we rip on it, but when people do well in it, they seem pretty darn happy. So It'll be it'll be much more interesting at the Olympic Games. You're going to have uh, Pentaro in there. You're going to have Hirscher. They thought, saw fit to sit it out. It will be much more entertaining, at least on the men's side. Women's already fairly deep. Move on. Uh, and then today we had the, the, the men's downhill in Wengen. Classic. Uh, actually, my favorite downhill. I think it's... It has all the elements uh, that you would expect in a downhill. It's not just one thing. You kind of have to be a master of all to win that race. Um, it's traditionally been a really successful or it's been a good place for the Americans, although today it wasn't. But Bayot Voigt's won. Uh, you know, last week in the predictions I said I thought he would be too fat to win, but that turns out not to be the case. Uh, you you made a prediction that he would do well there, and Sure enough, there there he was on top of the podium. Svindal second, uh, Meyer third. Uh, it was you know a great day, and I think it really that downhill really highlights the sport when things go well there. It's beautiful. You have this dramatic back, backdrop. It's incredibly long. It's incredibly fast. You have to be in really good shape at the bottom of the course. It kind of has everything. Which bad voice was? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> He actually, he made time on Spindal in the final turns. And I was, as much as I predicted him to win, I was as surprised as you were that he would outski Spindal in that particular part of the course. Yeah, and um, it's just the only bummer is number one won the race. And we talked about that a little bit last week, the problems with downhill. And it's anticlimactic when the first guy wins. Um, But still, it's a great downhill. And so that's the men's recap. What about the women? Uh, the women. As goes Marcel Hirscher and his dominance in tech. Michaela Schifrin's dominance has been maybe a notch higher. Five consecutive victories. It would have been nine consecutive victories going into the end of last year. Uh, I mean, into December by last year, I mean. But Federica Brignoni beat Schifrin uh, in the Giants' song. That would have been a nice rip. Lots of talk about Schiffen's won so much that we've sort of gone into the deep end. She's made us go swimming in statistical soup, as I've called it. And there's a lot of flotsam out there. She's done what she's doing is unbelievable. But should we, you know, the fact that she's won five in a row and the record is six is more a function of the calendar than it is. Uh, really drawing attention to what she's doing, which is dominating thoroughly in slalom. And now she has found, it seems, at least in the short time, 
she's found that dominance in Giant Slalom and the Giant Slalom victory that she had in Kronskagora, which was in the second round, it was set like a downhill. It was all the things that uh, kind of, they are her kryptonite. I think I said that on the air. Uh, and the fact that she was able to hang on and win, uh, you know, she's moving into a new space in tech. I think yeah. there are far too many superlatives going on right now with her, but I think you've got one. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that I. it's amazing what she's doing, and it's it's certainly fun to watch. But the on the interwebs last week, after she won her fifth race to start the season, people seem to be losing their minds, The both the ski racing fans in the United States and the ski racing media. Uh, just all kinds of Twitter questions and suppositions. And you would have walked away from that thinking that she might be the greatest skier ever in the history of the sport based on an overreaction. Um, and I'm not saying that what she's doing isn't amazing and it's certainly fun to watch. Um, and she's kind of now doing it from all different angles. Like in Blackout, she came back and won the second run mm -hmm. after not winning the first run. And we haven't seen a lot of that from her. Usually it's a fast first run and a slower second run. So we're kind of seeing it all from her now. But let's just pump the brakes a little bit on the hoopla accolades and hoo-ha around this because there's a long way to go uh, in her career and I think it's fun to say at this point in her career it's amazing and there's a lot of stats out there backing that up. Um, obviously one of the greatest starts to a career in the history of the sport, but um, I think there tends to be an overreaction in the immediacy of it. And then the, the beauty of that is that it does raise awareness of the sport and uh Again, you don't want to undersell what she's doing, but I, I agree. I just, like, my mind is about to explode with math when we're trying to figure out how many different ways she's awesome. we just got to watch her ski. It's awesome. So, on board with you there. Um, and I can't think of anyone who's not. Uh, as far as the women go this weekend, ooh, man, it's been a long break, almost a full month between speed events. Um and this was a tough one. Bad Klein Kirkheim almost didn't pull off a race at all. They'd had rain. I think there was some question as to how well prepared the venue was prior to the rain hitting. When that rain hit, it just knocked the bottom out of the surface there. And so they were scrambling to get a good surface. Uh, and they decided to scrap the downhill because they felt like if they went for the downhill, that's going to require two runs, right? A training run and then, of course, the downhill. Whereas at least if they schedule a Super G and they get the surface, they can get one race off. And there were some questions today about the safety of the course. I'd like to look at it from both sides. One, you've got the FIS who and the venue. They're trying to pull off a race. There's a lot of money that gets lost when these races do not happen. Uh, on the flip side, there is a danger component to it. Um, and I thought today was safe enough to race. You had the guy that was, uh, you know, the course setter, like uh, higher up on the FIS. He's out there with the water himself and the salt, JP uh, uh, Voulet, doing a lot of work to try and make it as safe as possible. Again, I respect the decision that they made, but I do know that it's made people kind of having fits out there. In the Super G, you could see that Lindsey Vaughn was not ready to fully gas it. 
Someone who was, was Lara Goot. And Lara Goot was all gas. Had she not caught her pole around the, I think, fourth to last gate, victory would have been hers. But Federica Brignone was also awesome. And uh, she didn't have that mistake. And she walked away with the victory. And Cornelia Hooter, Connie Hooter, uh, in third place there. Great performance by her. A lot of women out there willing to charge on what was a difficult track. Yeah, I think um, the balance between the risk and the need to pull off these races is always super tricky. I, I don't know what the answer is in these cases. I don't know if they need to put together... You know, we've seen a number of controversies over the history of the World Cup, dating back to, I think, in Aspen, where men stood in the start and wouldn't allow the race to start until something was done about the course conditions. And... I believe that was, that was a Mark Giardelli movement, I want to say. Yeah, I think it was. Um, and I think that this is always going to be a tension that is really hard to reconcile. And then you have, you know, you have someone like Lindsay coming, sort of seemingly dealing with something nagging going on with her knee. Um, and obviously having a bunch of crashes in her n- near history. So that probably raises some red flags. Um, and I don't... You know, I don't know if they need to put together a racer's jury that says, like, yes, we're going to go or no, we're not going to go. But right now, um, it seems like they're making pretty good decisions. Mm-hmm. But there's always that tension, and it always seems like there's going to be a little bit of controversy at a minimum around when the conditions are tricky and they're trying to pull off a race and it's a little bit dangerous. Should we go? Should we not go? Vaughn is the athlete rep at Bad Klein Kirkheim, and I know that uh, they were going to have, they had an inspection today. They're going to have a training run tomorrow morning uh, as soon as light allows, which is at 9 a.m., one minute intervals. And then rip it right around and go back up to the start and race. And they were contemplating not having an inspection in the morning, just today, but not in the morning. And Vaughn said, that's not safe. And as the athlete rep, they listened to her. So they're going to have a 20-minute inspection in the morning. And um, it's going to be a very busy, busy day for them. But with that... I think now is a good time to get to our interview with Brandon Dykstrahaus, formerly the coach of Michaela Schifrin. He's been doing some private coaching, has a new job. He's back in Vail, Colorado. Vaughn came back to the United States to get, uh, you know, her knee was hurting. So uh, I think there was some attention paid to that, but also some attention paid to getting set to go back to Europe at a higher level that she left the United States with last time. We saw her, or excuse me, a higher level than she brought to Europe. That make any sense? No. Let's let Brandon Psycho House make sense of it. Here he is. Brandon Dykstra House. It has not been lost on me following Instagram that you spent uh, a few days with Vaughn after she returned from Val d'Isere a day early because she. Uh, obviously her body wasn't feeling well enough to race the next day. Um, so with that, uh, and you're back in the international skier game, how did this all precipitate? Uh, well, about a month ago, uh, her team CK and Lindsay reached out and Chris Knight, and her I, coach. Yes. CK. Yes. Asked if I'd be willing to help, um, with some alignment, issues and i said sure sure i'd be interested um it would have to be virtual because i'm currently working with an 11 and 12 year old in aspen 
but yeah, I'd be honored to help. And, and it kind of started with email dialogue, passing of videos, sharing of, of thoughts. And um, yeah, from there, it turned into her coming home right before Christmas and getting the opportunity to work with her. Uh, it was, she was very, it was radio silence after she left Val d'Azer. It was interesting to me because the Vaughn, uh, of old, and I would say from age 17 to 33, one thing that's quite admirable about her is that she'll get injured and she'll ski through, she'll ski through anything. She'll ski through pain. And she has said she's going to be safer about when she steps in the gate, um, I assume that's why she made the decision not to ski the day after winning. Uh, so I was, in a way, amazed that she pulled the plug, went home. What do you know about her condition right now, physically? You know, when she went down in Lake Louise, I thought for sure her knee was gone. That crash was so horrendous, and the torque on the knee. Um, and then to see her back up and winning, I'm like, oh, my God, she is superhuman. Unreal. Uh when she pulled out, my first reaction was, uh, you know, the knee really is bad. And when she came home, uh, one of my first texts was, hey, are you okay? And she said, absolutely fine. And uh, we went out on the hill in the first couple of runs. She was a little tentative. And I was somewhat worried, as you can imagine, when you're with the franchise, the last thing you want to do is be the one responsible for her not participating in the Olympics. Um mm-hmm. But then a couple of runs into it, she was doing legendary moves on skis. And I'm like, well, she looks pretty good to me. So, uh, yeah, that's as much as I know. She, as everyone knows, she's an animal in the gym. And she posts that daily. So I think uh, she's been in the game for a long time. And there's been a long history of injuries. But uh, I think she manages them quite well and uh, is going to do anything in her power to uh, come home with the gold. Uh, I'm curious what you guys were able to, if anything, resolve. And I think for those of us that are watching her carefully in Lake Louise, something seemed out of sorts. Uh, and not even not just after the crash, which is obvious, but before the crash, it didn't seem like the person we had heard was skiing incredibly well in the preseason? You know, I, I think there are two different takes, right? She went down uh, in Lake Louise, but she was winning at every split. And in my opinion, if she gets across the finish line and wins that day, she goes three for three in Lake Louise, and it's a completely different scenario, and, and uh, I never get a phone call to help, mm-hmm. uh, which I would be totally fine with because I want to see her rewrite history and and have the winningest record ever. So uh, she didn't, she obviously didn't finish that first day. And with all athletes, it kind of plays into your nerves. And I think uh, we, we have this new, not a new rising star, but star that's uh, venturing into speed and had great success in Lake Louise. And uh, I think that just heightens the, the need to really perform and perform now. And so, that's that's kind of my ten thousand foot view on the situation. Right. I mean, we're um, talking about Schifrin, Schifrin beating Vaughn, and I think anyone from the outside looking in can see how Vaughn, having dominated speed for so long, to have someone that just started, you know, I know dabbling is quite the right word, but any competitor is going to react like that. I, I think that's completely inside the realm of normal. 
Right, right. So, yeah, I, I think what has historically been our bread and butter wasn't this year. So there was a little panic, and it's an Olympic year, and obviously uh, she's had her share of injuries and wants to make this year exceptional and make it through injury-free. And uh, so, uh, to be honest, the, the little work we did, uh, it was fairly minor. Um, but I think it's more just rebuilding the confidence and obviously her team of, with CK, CK's just awesome to work with. He, he shared all the videos, shared what they're working on. Um, we By the way, to- that's, that's not normal. No, I, I think, no, I think I w- it's fair to say that when uh, a certain coach gets their hands around any athlete, but let alone an athlete like Vaughn, they're not always welcoming new input. They want to own the franchise. Uh, you surprised by that? Oh, he, he's remarkable in that regard. I mean, this is a guy who has one of the longest tenures on the U.S. ski team and at World Cup, who's currently employed by the U.S. ski team. And, and he has this incredible ability to manage stars, right? He was with Julia when she was dominating, he's been with Vaughn and uh, it takes a different character to be able to handle that kind of pressure year in and year out. Um, because there, there's a lot at stake. Like not only, I mean, athletes at that level are accustomed to performing and if they're not performing, the first person to go is the coach. So it just, it, I mean, he, he does great work with athletes of that caliber. So where is she? I mean, how much of this, little detail work that you guys did can you share and was there progress um so we did very very minor adjustments to the equipment um you know my approach is it's kind of twofold is that a the equipment has to be right to create movement patterns that allow the athletes to ski confidently and to be successful at that level um but that also breeds like your boot setup or ski setup. Uh, those movements generate confidence, and without the confidence, you're not going to win, even if the equipment's correct. So, uh, I would say our approach was a let's work on the equipment, but also work on the movement so that she feels good about everything and and she can go forward and uh, be the dominant skier that we've all known over the last 15 years. Did she go um, forward over those? Uh, I mean, it wasn't that many days that you spent with her, four days, well, I think. Well, I mean, the girl's incredible, right? So we skied slalom, and everyone knows that she hasn't invested a lot of time in slalom over the past couple of years. First run down. Why'd she ski um, slalom first, by the way? I'm thinking, you know, bad knees, slalom, not a great, well, that's a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> we were actually going to start with GS, but there was no GS health space. So, um, so we decided to go with slalom. Um, first run down, she looked like you would expect from someone who's invested the last 10 years in downhill. Um, we rode the lift, discussed strategy and like instant, instant change. And I'm talking tactical change because she's already pretty well ingrained in, in what she does with technique and her approach. Um, but her ability to implement change was like just phenomenal. And when you win 78 World Cups, I guess you would expect that. Um, so that part was really fun for me to see someone uh, who doesn't invest a lot of time in slalom 
put just a couple runs in and, and, and be pretty successful. I've always joked with CK over the years that if they need a slalom specific coach, I want to be the guy just because I love slalom so much. And uh, I remember my very first camp as a ski coach was in Mount Hood uh, at working with Eric Seiler. And Lindsay and Julia were both nine years old at that camp. And, and uh, I brought that up with Lindsay and she's like, well, I was probably skiing better at nine years old in Swalm than I am now. And we both kind of joke because she was that good at nine years old. Right. And for the people that don't know the name Eric Seiler, and you should, uh, I, I don't know how old he is now. I, he's in his 90s, still coaching. Uh, he's been coaching for 65 years up at Buck Hill and has turned out uh, more great skiers uh, that have made it to the top than any other coach in the country would be my guess. He is absolutely a legend. <laughs> I think <laughs> the guy's done more for the sport than, than probably anyone in the U S. Yeah. So anyway, so we slalom, uh, obviously you couldn't have stopped at slalom. Nope. So day two, we went to GS, um, conditions were a little soft, um, it, at least to do any sort of alignment work. So, we did some remedial free skiing and uh, that was actually probably the most fun I had with Lindsay because first run down, she said, what do you think? And uh, I was kind of like, well, what do you think? And she told me. Nice and, try. Yeah. And uh, uh, I expected more out of her and I think she was a little, a little shocked and I'm like, well, that's not going to cut it. And uh, but I mean, the girl, she worked so hard. And we went run after run and the level of focus, like, uh, again, with these super champions, they have this ability to have this singular focus that um, hone in on the task and, and do it until they get it right. And she was she was awesome. And I think everyone's by now has probably seen video I posted or a picture that I pulled from her GS skiing and the position she was able to get in. uh I didn't think we're still possible for her. It was awesome. So, yeah, I expect that. Uh, I hope she gets a little more GS time under her belt because even from a start number of 31 or wherever she's going to be in Pyeongchang, I think she could have a pretty decent chance if the conditions are right. Because it's an easier hill. I mean, clearly she didn't look. Uh, she looked well out of sorts in Solden, the tough hill. She hadn't had many miles. Um, uh is it fair to say that we should not use that as a uh, as a window into what could happen at the Olympics? Absolutely right. I mean, she's she's made it very clear that the Olympics are the focus, and she's ramping up for it. And her decision to pull out right before Christmas um, are case in point, and she's going to do whatever it takes to perform on that stage. What you saw from her, um, women's speed hasn't really taken shape right now at this conversation. Bad Klein Kierkeim hasn't happened. Um, what do you predict? And, and, well, answer that. So, first of all, I think a lot can happen. Every athlete is one turn away from not being there the following day. Um, having said that, she's the most experienced, most successful uh, most determined athlete that I know of on the circuit. And uh, if she is feeling good and she gets good training. So w one thing I'll add is that in Colorado, we had 
great conditions, but not conditions uh, that you necessarily find on World Cup, meaning uh, we didn't get anything that was really icy or really hard. So uh, that is that is a different beast. And yeah, that's always a, a, a different beast when particularly when you have a knee like hers. For sure. And it's it, it's a different beast with the equipment, too, because something that works in Colorado, dry, grippy Colorado snow mm-hmm. doesn't always translate to humid, slick European snow. So um, if she feels comfortable when she's over there and and uh, everything I've heard leads me to believe that she feels comfortable and things are going great, then then she's got to be the favorite. So the one thing that is important to point out is how unique it is for coaches like that to collaborate. They can be very territorial. Whereas Lindsey Vaughn's coach, her go-to guy from the US ski team, Chris Knight, he's been with that team for better part of a decade, also working with Julia Mancuso. And he is one of the most collaborative coaches, egoless coaches, I have ever come across. And I would say that about the men's, uh, the women's downhill staff in general. It's not normal. That is not normal for them to collaborate with people, you know, from the outside of their staff. And he did. And I think it gets athletes to higher ground. Uh, And so I just wanted to point that out. But for you, what did you take away from uh, what Dykstra House said? I mean, I think, yeah, collaboration is, is really interesting um, and I think it's healthy to get a little bit different perspective especially when you're not feeling like your setup and your confidence is that great um, and to have another set of eyes on that that that's really I think I think it's a good place to go and then the other big takeaway I felt was that Lindsay has aspirations on both the combined and the giant slalom in the Olympics and the combined is going to be Really, really interesting. Women's well, combined. We're, we're, we're changing our tune now, aren't we? Really? Yeah. Keep, no, I hate combining theory. Let's just keep. I want to be clear about that. But at the Olympics, you're going to see Michaela Schifrin and Lindsey Vaughn go head to head in a few events, maybe now. And the place where I think it all comes together is the combined, because obviously Lindsey's a speed queen and Michaela's a tech queen. And they, Michaela dominates the slalom, and Lindsay's history in downhill is very well known. And we're going to bring it all together in the combined at the Olympics. And if that isn't appointment TV, then I don't know what is. Right. I mean, the greatest, you know, the two people that we're talking about being the greatest skiers of all time are going to. That's a clash of the titans right there. Yeah. That's going to be awesome. Yeah. I'm with you. And I was I was completely blown away that, you know, she's the first thing she does is train slalom when she gets home. Not what I was thinking when, you know, it's obviously the the knee is sore and geez, I wonder why the knee is sore. I mean, go back to the that crash. I don't know if we gave that enough due, but when she crashed in Lake Louise, that was some kind of pretzel she was in before she went into the netting. Yeah, I think that crash kind of got glossed over because there was a lot of other things going on in Lake Louise like Michaela winning and power outage and people riding the top in snowcats and a whole thing going on there but that crash was hairy and I don't think a lot of people walk away from that crash and I was I think we we're all surprised to see her walk away from that crash and not only did she walk away from that crash but she raced the next day. And, and I think there was a sky is falling, like maybe Lindsey Vaughn isn't the same Lindsey Vaughn because she didn't win the next day. But I think we were all forgetting how hairy that crash was. 
And the fact that she got on the hill and got a top 10 finish after a crash like that, I think indicates some of what makes Lindsey Vaughn truly great. Yeah. And then, let's not forget, it was the back issue in Samaritz. And then, coming off that, you know, she skis through a lot of pain. Yeah. That is going to be her legacy. Her ability to just go straight into the orange room and come out and go right to the top of the podium. Yeah. I went into the orange room a couple times in my career, and I basically was a whimpering crybaby for the next week. Right. So Yeah. And I think that's that's normal. Well, for you. The other uh, element right now that I want to switch our attention to... Okay, clearly we cannot be consistent about our opinion on the Super Combined. I think it's going to be thrilling at the Olympic Games. I really do. During the World Cup season, it sometimes is not. I think the one... In Vengen, as we pointed out before, <laughs> wasn't all that thrilling, but it was from the standpoint of the first ever Russian to make it to the podium. There's not, as you will find from the interview you're about to hear from Urban Planasek, there's not that many opportunities. If you're not Austria and Switzerland and Norway and Sweden and currently right now the United States, you don't get these moments that often. So for the awkward to say, tiny Alpine country of Russia, this is a huge moment. And Urban Planacek, who, by the way, skied in the NCSA at Sierra Nevada School before going back to Slovenia and ultimately becoming the head coach of the uh, Russian team, was pretty pretty excited about the fact that uh, he put his man, or his man put himself, on that podium. Here he is. So, uh, Urban, first of all, congratulations on, uh, I had to look it up, when Trikichev, and I, am I saying it properly, Pavel Trikichev? Yes. Um, first ever combined podium for, and this is also where I get confused, so help me out, is it Russia, or if you go back in time, it's the Soviet Union. And so do you consider any record by Russia completely unique from any standards that were set by the USSR previously? Well, I always, I, I, looked, I looked back, you know, because there in the early 80s, they had really cool generations, a generation with Figano, Makeo, Giro, Andreev, the guys were on podium and winning races. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know, I, I didn't look up for combine. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, I consider, you know, because they're Russian skiers, you know. Right. So, so when you talk about, like, Valery Ziganov and um, and I think it was, uh, yeah, Alexander Zirov, those guys, I think, together, 15 World Cup podiums, five of them victories, you would consider those Russian accomplishments as well? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. They were also they're Russians. Valery Ziganov is now executive director of Ski Federation. Uh, and uh, Okajiro died in a car accident a long time ago. Uh, Makeya was a coach coach before us, you know, until 2010. So, yeah, these are Russian Alpine skiers. Gotcha. Well, I, I can tell you that I did some research, and whether it's Russian or Soviet, 
that Trikhachev is in fact the first ever male or female to make it to a combined podium. And I got to say, I did not see that one coming. And I want to know if you saw that coming. You know, funny because I was, I mean, for sure not, you know, but we we had that chance, you know, two years ago. And, uh, you know, after downhill, when you see the, when we saw slalom, slalom hill, how it is, in what kind of shape, you know, there was a chance, you know, with good skiing, because in that field was still Mufar, uh, who had good start number, and he won the second run in Adelboden. You know, Ted was out of 30, and the others, you know, depending, and here is a very demanding slalom. So deep down, I wanted, you know, at least top six, even before the race, because this would give us additional quota for Olympics, because Trikicho would move into top 30 on World Cup start list for Alpine combined, you know, and having extra quota, it's, it's always good to have, you know, for us. Yeah, so you were thinking about it very methodically, but, but there must have been a moment where you allowed yourself to start to dream a little bit during that second run of slalom. Yeah, this was uh, after uh, with eight guys left to go. Eight guys left to go. I said, this is now it's a realistic chance for podium. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just one of those combined events where the early number in the in the second run of slalom was going to have an advantage. And like you said, he took it. He took advantage of it. Got on the podium. What though might have been lost in all that? I hate the fact that the combine goes past the top thirty, and you still have to watch those racers, with the exception of this one, because Ligeti missed the flip by six hundredths of a second because he got all hung up in the start. Six hundredths have gone there easily. Had Ligeti gotten that early start number based on the skiing he produced in that second run of slalom, it was amazing. He went 31st, and he was only two seconds out. I am sure there was roughly a second and a half, maybe two seconds of time lost because of how that course got chewed up. And that would have meant no Russian on the podium. Well, it would have been no Italian on the podium. And I think Ligeti might just be a threat in combined for the Olympic Games. But then we had to turn uh, our attention to more serious matters. The elephant in the room, again, when you're talking about the Russians, is the fact that the Russian Federation banned from the Olympic Games. However, they can compete um, under the Olympic team. And so it's the Olympic Association of Russians, I think, is the name of that particular group. And so long as that, that you, as an individual, do not have a positive test in your history and that list is not yet out, uh, then you are eligible to go to the Olympics, but not compete for the Russians, not wear the Russian uniform, not hear the anthem in the event that you make it um, to the podium. And here is what Urban Planasek said about what's going on in their camp, particularly when they first got the news that the Russian Federation would be banned. Okay, since, since this came out, you know, or started coming out with McLaren report last year, our federation made an agreement with the independent topic agencies, you know, not Rosada, but from Europe, and our guys were tested regularly. Uh, just Trikicho was tested, uh, I think, eight times in the last half a year, uh, I think Horoshilo even more. Uh, federation keeps this statistic, 
so in that regard, uh, should not be any problems, you know, to compete. We are still waiting, you know, for the name list. So it's kind of it's kind of confusing situation. Nobody really knows. No, but don't know. I, I don't know. It's it's a little bit confusing in that regard. You know, we have plans to go, and uh, everything is focused to that. From airline tickets to to then uh, preparation and uh, goals. So we are on track for that. You know, it's just a little bit surrounding is a little weird. And speak to that a little bit. What's the? I mean, you said that this is something you were aware of as much as a year ago. What's been the impact um, on the team and the mood of the team and the ambiance of the team? Well, no, it's uh, it was for sure shock when it uh, when it was that press conference uh, uh, and uh, and what is uh, what is not good for athletes, you know, is that uh, at the Olympics you go and you want to represent your country, uh, be in the country's uh, colors and emblems, you know, and uh, if you by chance, you know, get a medal or uh, you win, you know, you want to hear your nation's anthem, you know, not some Olympic music or whatever this will be. First, we have to get in this situation, you know. And this is mostly, you know, for, for athletes, you know, that you go under Olympic athlete of Russia, not under your country. And uh, everybody else is, you know, as, until now, now is still everything okay. You know, we'll see when we get there, you know, once you don't have Russian national uniform, you know, but some IOC uniform. Right, the Olympic athlete from Russia, the OAR. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, indeed, it will be different. I mean, it's degrading, you know. I, I see this is, is degrading athletes, you know, and, and stuff, you know, that haven't done anything wrong, you know. Yeah. yeah. I have my opinion on that, you know. It's And I don't see that it's fair, you know. So it is interesting to hear um, the Russian perspective on this doping situation. Um, There's a lot of opinions and a lot of controversy around this issue. It is essentially the third rail of athletics right now that people are hesitant to talk about. There's been a lot of op-ed flying around in the New York Times and, and various other publications specific to this issue. There is no doubt, I think at this point, that the Russians had systematic doping across all sports and that's why they were banned as a country. Many people feel that the Russians should be banned across the board. It's certainly tricky. Um, I understand how athletes that are clean and getting caught up in this, um, it it would be sad if they couldn't go to the Olympics. But on the other hand, I personally feel like when your whole country gets busted for doping, maybe your whole country shouldn't go even under the auspices of a non, non... even representing no country. I just think um, there's no, there hasn't been a stand taken here that is meaningful. Uh, you know, it's, uh, if you have not seen it, I highly recommend you watch the movie Icarus. And uh, the man whose name now escaping me, who ran the lab in Russia... Uh, started to, he put percentages and actual numbers of athletes that were within uh, Russia's systematic doping. And he did not, he did not put it, and he's the one that ultimately uh, drew back the curtain on all of that. And he did not put uh, the blame on 100% 
of sports uh, and 100% of athletes. I think the number was somewhere, and he was estimating, right? But it was over, it was certainly over 50%. Um, so again, I get you on the third rail. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting one, and, and certainly uh, Urban, you got a sense of what his feeling is. I mean, he said it's, he, he thought it was shameful and, and, and disgraceful towards the athletes that were clean. And if you are clean, you can certainly understand that sentiment. All right, well, right now we're gonna turn back to Russian skiing from a different angle. And it's interesting, as I look at Russia, we all look at Russia as this massive nation that has long been an athletic powerhouse. But when it comes to alpine skiing, um, and Urban even says it, we're a tiny country and they are so large that they are in fact disjointed. The development system, it's very cryptic, uh, you know, even to him and how it all comes together. It's always been sort of a confusing to me. And so I asked him about the development system. I asked him where Trikhachev actually came from and where Hiroshlov actually came from and how they actually managed these guys up through the ranks. And here's what he had to say. We are so so little in Russia, you know. I mean, uh, you have uh, if you look at the, at the skiing, at the numbers, a lot of kids ski, a lot of people ski. You know, if you go now to Sochi, Sochi is full. Uh, on the east coast, you know, island of Sakhalin, uh, they have lots of kids. You know, they ski. Then a lot in Ural, you know. So, and in Moscow, Saint Petersburg, there is skiing is there, you know. But just uh, Alpine itself, you know, it's such a I would say European sport. Most of the time we are here in Alps, uh, so it's hard to have uh, this connection. You know, and as a as a competitive sport, uh, before Horoshilo, you know, it was a long time when they competed. Uh, com- competed, they did race and World Cup. You know, but to be really present, you know, on, uh, on in in the top, you know. So uh, that's why I consider it as a small nation. You know. Uh, and so, you know, how does a guy like Hiroshilov come through the system? I, I want to say, if I have it correct, that you were brought in to coach, is it 2012? Is that when you were brought on board? Uh, 2010. 2010, forgive me. So you've been there a long time. Um, how, does, uh, how does the Russian development system work? I don't know if it's, it doesn't really exist, you know, because it's, this is the problem of huge, of huge country. You know, we recruited in 2010, you know, we put uh, together three, three teams on men's side and then girls had uh, two teams and we go uh, down uh, as far as, uh, let's say, second year FIS when we get them on the team and girls uh, first year FIS. So we have the youngest are now uh, born in 2001. And we try to, to pick the best uh, that there is, and then uh, then coach them for uh, for longer period of time, you know, because uh, now it's eight years and after these guys, Andrienko, Trikicho, have been on the team now eight years with us, and I think they were before two more years or three years before already. So, so maybe specifically, specifically, where did Trikich? I don't know anything about Trikichev, where he came from. And what his, I don't know where he's from, where he grew up skiing, how he was developed, if he lives in Europe. What's his journey been? 
it's even hard for us, you know, to, to get all this information, you know. Uh, uh, now I know, I know, I mean, after so many years, you know, but at first, you know, it was, was hard because I asked, you know, what is the background of everybody, you know. I mean, I've seen Horoshilo before 2010 because he was in Europe racing. But Rikicho, and uh, let's say, I think he was first time in Europe, uh, age 17. So I think around, yeah, age 17, year or two before we came. Uh, and he grew up in Murmansk region. This is uh, northwest uh, of Russia, uh, coached by father, and then moved to Moscow region. And he competes for Moscow region because they competed nationals uh, in the Russian Cup for their for their regions. And now he lives in St. Petersburg, and uh, and that's it, you know. And when, when they came to Europe because competition in Russia is pretty low. So you have to bring them to Europe and it takes time, you know, until they see competition here, you know, and realize, you know, where the level of skiing is. And so is he is he living in Europe now? No, they, he lives in St. Petersburg. I mean, we have as a team, we have a house, home base in Werfen in Austria. And we are most of the time here, you know, for sure at the beginning it was a problem because with the visa, you can stay only 90 days in half a year. In Europe, and this we know in, for the winter is, uh, is tough, you don't, uh, you are more days in Europe than uh, 90, and now they have a different visa that allows them to stay here longer, you know. And so I, I want to shift over to um, Hiroshilov. Uh, and, you know, back to that year where he was on the podium regularly. Um, and, and specifically, I want you to tell the story that you told me once about after he won in Schladming. I think you told me he was voted the athlete of the month in Russia. And it, it changed, it really changed who he was and the pride he had in his skiing. And before that, this is a guy that had tremendous talent, but as you explained it, really very little confidence and belief. That month, I think, was uh, also Sharapova did well. I don't know how well she did that time in uh, Australian Open, and that he beat her in the voting. You know, this was uh, this was amazing. You know, this was uh, recognition for him and for Alpine uh, uh, competitive sport, not recreation, but for competitive sport that we exist. You know, because in other winter sports they were successful cross country, biathlon, but we were never. You know, and. Uh, be there. I don't know how I recognize he is there because I don't read much of their media. Um, He's certainly dropped off this year in terms of performance. Can you put a finger on on what's happening with him right now? It's been <laughs> was it's kind of was specific, you know. He had very good. He skied very well in Levy. Uh, he made mistake in the middle of the pitch but continue and had the first, uh, he was first on the bottom. Didn't qualify for second run. Uh, then came Valdi there. Didn't feel that well. Uh, skipped poorly. Then came Madonna. And then, uh, you know, Madonna was on course for podium, second after first run, fast on top, first beat, second run, straddle. And then came two races that were uh, conditions that he really not dislike, but he cannot perform well in these conditions, plus uh, plus degree weather, 
water and salt. Adelboot, Zagreb and Adelboot, you know. And then it's a slalom skier, you know. Uh, you have to go 100% because if you want to compete with here, should be 100% and the rest. Uh, and you lose the confidence, slalom is, slalom is a tough one. So we are hoping, you know, for tomorrow in Rubengen with the good conditions that are looking to be, you know, that can be a change in, uh, in the season. Uh, you've been to the you've been to the track uh, in in Korea. Um, you spoke about conditions. Let's just kind of forecast uh, in the event. Uh, we're assuming that your guys are going to be there. Uh, is that the kind of hill where you think he would be a medal contender? Uh, yes, they went there last year. I didn't go with them, but they went uh, for four days training on the hill. Uh, for Oshilo only, the other Krikicho uh, and Andrienko were there for Faris Cup in January. Uh, they all performed well. For uh, had good training there. If conditions will be, uh, who knows, in Olympics, you know, Olympic slaloms history is always uh, specific, <laughs> specific uh, weathers. Uh, but yeah, why not? I mean, sure, if it's ice, uh, I would put the money on him, yes. If it's no ice, then let's see, roll the dice. What do you think of that? My takeaway is, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, but I think, you know, having a large country is always looked at as being an advantage. And I think in some sports it is. Um, but in skiing, it seems really hard to coordinate across huge distances. And there's been talk, you know, over the course of U.S. skiing that one of the hindrances to cohesive development is the size of the country the different regions, the competition between programs, and putting together something comprehensive across such a large, um, a large country is problematic. Yeah. No. And in fact, I w- I'm going to sort of uh, promote the podcast I did with uh, Lars Christofferson, Henrik Christofferson's father, and he talks a lot about sort of the antithesis of what you're saying is that so much concentration of talent in Norway lives in and around the small ski areas of Oslo and they have this concentration of talent and it's in many ways I think the density of competition is far more important than the gross numbers and you heard it same deal in Russia I mean it's probably far more sparse the way their talent is spread out over a much larger geographic area um, and their answer seems to be what USA Cycling has done, which is, hey, the game is played in Europe, and so we're going to take talent young and make them live in Europe and play the game in Europe so they understand the density of competition at a very young age. Cycling and skiing, not exactly the same thing, um, but anyway, there's always some takeaways from different countries, and uh, maybe there's some takeaways from the Russians because they have produced in Hiroshilov, as he reminded us, a guy that, yeah, he hasn't produced this year on paper, but oh yeah, he's been very fast periodically. And that's really all you need. That and a little bit of confidence, that seems to be flagging right now. Put those two things together with confidence at the Olympic Games. Sure, he's a threat. No doubt. He's a great great slalom skier and his technique to some extent mimics I think the way uh, Hirscher skis it seems like he's I'm guessing he's watched a lot of Hirscher video Um, and it's fun to watch him ski slalom and when he's at the top of his game 
he can certainly win his lawn races. And I have to say that the way this conversation precipitated, I congratulated him on his podium, and he wrote back and he said, hey, the Russians have one more podium than the U.S. men do this year. And I thought, he is, he is right. It has been a tough year for the U.S. men. Um, I, I don't think there's any doubt that the U.S. men, and this is not a revelation, this has been in existence for a while, no depth in slalom, and giant slalom. As far as metal contention, however, I still think that Ligeti is going to show up GS ready. Maybe not to beat Hirscher, but to contend for that podium in giant slalom. But what do you think about combined, and what do you think about what you see in men's speed? I think men's speed is a work in progress. Um, I think, you know, losing Travis Ganong was a big blow. Huge. Especially with Nyman coming back from injury. And as we're seeing in today's result, uh, Nyman doesn't seem to be fully back. I, I don't know if it's a question of confidence or technique at this point, but um, there's still time for him to straighten it out yeah, before the Yeah, for sure he's not. For sure he's not totally back. But I think today, I think he ended up 22nd. Step in the right direction. But now he needs to go from stepping to running. Yeah. And, and it needs to happen in the next month. There needs to be progression. Um, you know, he's had some success on that hill in Korea. Yeah. Um, and I think that hill can be favorable for him. And the snow conditions are going to be favorable. That's something that we should not forget. The snow conditions there apparently mimic North America as opposed to European snow conditions, which is a big difference and gives the Americans... I think a, a leg up in a lot of ways. I think the Europeans are very uncomfortable on snowmaking and dry snow, and that's what they have, it sounds like, in Korea. Um, so that will be, I think, something that we will want to watch. You know, Bryce Bennett has been consistently now in the top 20, and that uh, is definitely a step for him. I think he's. we've seen him make leaps where he jumps into the top 10 or top 20 and then he falls back. This year he's been consistently in the top 20. I don't know if he's going to be a metal threat, but he might be a top 10 yeah, threat. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the that the U.S. men uh, speed team is moving in the right direction with its next generation. And Jared Goldberg, by the way, was pulling time back on Bayat Foyt's uh, before crashing about two-thirds of the way down the track in Vangen. So the speed is there, uh, and you know he doesn't always know when to sh downshift into fourth. But if there's something that you want in a downhiller, it's a guy that's not afraid to always put it in top gear and go, so long as he can stay healthy. Uh, so potential there, but maybe not metal potential in the immediate future. But uh, they're right now slalom and giant slalom. You put us on the same page of what's happening in Russia. It, it, development issue, and it, there does not seem to be a uh, the feeder system right now. It looks a little lean. Yeah, that's putting it mildly. Um, it's definitely concerning to see this going on right now with American skiing, especially in Olympic season. This is where alpine skiing gets its visibility outside of the hardcore fans. And, you know, it, it would be really great to see Ligeti medal in giant slalom. And, and, you know, based on his skiing today or yesterday in the combined, I think that he might be a threat in combined as well. Um, we saw him win a gold. We were both there in Schladming when he won a gold in, in combined um, in Schladming at the World Championships in 2013. And I think there is a possibility on that hill that he could pull something like that off. Maybe not gold, but he could 
be on the podium there as well. I'm, I'm told that Head came out with a new slalom boot that Andre Mir was loving, and that got communicated to Ligeti, and Ligeti said, hey, I want to ski some slalom now, and, and I don't know if all of that came to fruition, but the, he showed some, some speed there. Anyway, now, now is the time to make our more immediate picks, or perhaps before we get to that, let's give you some news nuggets. So right now we're going to talk about our little news and nuggets around the World Cup. Um, I think off the top it would be remiss to not point out the fact that Victoria Ravensburg was sick this week and unable to compete in Bad Klein Kirchheim. Um, she seemed like the biggest threat to Michaela Schifrin in the overall if any exists at this point. And the fact that she's skipping these races due to sickness... Uh, probably locks it up for Michaela. I can't see anyone now competing with her to win that overall title. It's definitely it's, it's to the point where if Schifrin stopped right now, she still could win the overall. For sure. For sure. It's a disappointment to see this happen with Ravensburg because I think we felt for the last three, maybe four years, that she was going to compete for the overall and there are these little things that continue to happen to her that seem to set her back and not allow her to do that. She's a beautiful skier. She can compete in three events um, for podiums and wins. And it just seems like she can't put it all together. And, you know, it, it was going to be a long shot anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely disappointing. Julia Mancuso, who we had on the podcast uh, last week, told us that if it's going to be rough in Badkline Kirkheim, that she may not start. It was rough in Badkline Kirkheim, which, by the way, directly translated means Bath Small Church Home, and she decided that she wasn't going to go. The obvious decision, as soon as you heard about the conditions they had there, obvious decision that she made. Uh, so her favorite venue of all time coming up next week in Cortina, and that could be her Hail Mary to make it to the Olympic Games. Edith Miklos of Hungary uh, had a really hard crash uh, in today's uh, Super G. Today, as of this recording, and she got all kinds of caught up in the one section of the course that they kept holding the race start for because it was softening up. I called it like a sandbox. It was like the surface broke through and they were throwing water and salt on it. It would try to firm up, it would break through again and create that kind of sandy little thing and the ski got caught on her and it looked very much like she sustained a knee injury. Go to skiracing.com and I'm sure by the time you're hearing this, you will get the full details on what happened to Miklos, but it looked like a knee issue, which then turned into a concussion possibly issue. Uh, and so much to be reported on her, but that seems to be the end of her season, along with Elena Fankini. And I also urge you to go to SkiRacing.com to read up on her. But the last we heard of today, she will be sitting out the rest of the season because of a neoplasm issue, which uh, I'm not a medical expert, but I think what we're talking about is a cancer scare right now that she has to go deal with. So a tough hit for uh, Fankini, and quite frankly, as we just went through that list of four women, a tough hit for the Women's World Cup. Yeah, and on the men's side, we see that Roland Leidinger uh, tore his ACL this week. Uh, he's going to be out for the rest of the season. It continues a spate of injuries and knee injuries that we're seeing in specific this season. 
Um, you know, there's nothing to pinpoint there. It's just, I think, disappointing not to see a number of top racers are going to miss the Olympics um, or a number of top racers are coming back just to try and make the Olympics. Um, and it's always disappointing to see this happen right before the Olympics. All right, now we will go to our picks for the upcoming races. Uh, we've got the big one coming up, Kitzbühel. Uh, and then we have the women going to Cortina. Um, I was pretty good with my picks this week. You probably want me to go first, but no. What? I get to go second. Oh, you get to go second? I get to go second. Um, okay, so I will go first. Kitzbühel, Super G. I've got Hannes Reichelt winning. Mm-hmm. Bayat Foyts taking second place. Max Franz in third. Oh, nice. Um, I just think the Austrians right now are pretty fast. They're all kind of sniffing around in the top ten. Um, and I think if there's a place where they're going to step up, it's in Kitzbühel. Um, in the downhill, I have Matthias Meyer winning the downhill. I have Dominic Paris in second place. And Axel Lund's Findahl in third. It's a little bit of a bummer that Findahl is not going to win. Uh, per my prediction, because it would be nice to see him get his first win at Kitzbühel and sort of, I think, in all honesty, put a bow on a career that is amazing. Yeah. Um, it's always nice to put that feather in your cap of the Kitzbühel downhill win. I think his opportunity to win that race was actually when he blew his knee out two years ago. Yep. Um, he, I think he was going to win that day, and I don't think he's going to end up putting that feather in his cap. In the slalom, I have I, I can't pick against anyone other than Hirscher in the slalom. I mean, he's just unbeatable right now. I think you're going to see um, Christofferson take second place, and then third place. You have to pause. I don't know. No, I'm going to go with mine then. While you think about it. And I will go, it's interesting because our picks are very similar. I, I think that the Austrians have come into this season better than ever in speed. It's always seemed that they haven't hit their stride until Wengen, but they're stronger and they're deeper this year. Super G, I'm giving them the sweep. I'm giving them the sweep. Meyer, Reichelt, Kriegmeier. Kriegmeier has been awesome. Kriegmeier. Kriegmeier was awesome. In Vengen. His skiing was awesome. Uh, the downhill, I'm giving uh, Svindal the feather in his cap. I just think that for him, uh, he has a way of getting what he wants. And I know that, that the fact that he hasn't won that uh, is not going to be pressure for him. It's going to be incentive. And he rises to those occasions. I think Reichelt will come in second. And I think Meyer will be third. And I had Paris on there, but I scratched him off. So interesting. We're talking about the same guys, basically. Slalom, it's got to be Christofferson one of these days. Um, I think, as of, this, as of this recording, I think it's going to be in Wengen, and I think it's going to be in Kitzbühel. The reason I think Kitzbühel, um, harder snow, and I think he's just a little bit better on harder snow. Um, here shall we second. And because of the harder snow that I'm predicting there, because they just have a way of, even when it's warm, making it an, uh, just a sheet of ice, uh, Stefano Gross. Stefano Gross needs that kind of surface. 
So that's my third place guy. But you look at me like I'm crazy. You don't even have a third place guy. You couldn't my, think of a third uh, guy. I got a third place guy. And I'm. I, this is going to be... I predict that in Kitzbühel, we see David Riding, who made his first podium appearance in Kitzbühel last season and has sort of had an up and down season this season. Um, I predict he gets third there. Okay, good enough. Women. The women. Cortina. We, Cortina, we got a downhill and a super G. Uh, in the in the downhill, I got Vaughn number one, Revensburg number two, Goja number three. Um, I think we're going to see Vaughn break out in Cortina. She needs to, I think, get her confidence up going to into the Olympics, and it's a good venue for her. It's a it's a great downhill. It has a lot of flow to it. You can find a rhythm, and I think. That's where we're going to see her come back to the top. I also have her winning the Super G with Vyrotter second and Anna Veit third. Um, I, I think Veit could actually, that's good snow conditions for her. Usually it's not too hard there. Um, and I think as we've seen, when the snow conditions get difficult, she kind of disappears. But usually that is optimum, and I think she'll do well. Yeah. Good calls. There are going to be two downhills there because they're making up one of the downhills, but we'll just. Just do, we'll just pick one. Assume it's going to be the same order the next day. Um, I've got Vaughn for the same reasons. I just think Cortina is her place. The following week, it's Garmisch. She's not a fan. It's one of those places where it can be a little bit dicey. Uh, so I see Vaughn really trying to build speed and, and show her stuff to herself, if not to the rest of the world, in Cortina. I've got Hooter there in second, Goja third, Super G, Goot. Oh, boy, she was victory-bound today before she caught her hand. I think I'm going to be Goot first. Uh, and I'm going to put Schifrin second. Because uh, while we're not certain that Schifrin is going to be in Cortina, it's been penciled in. She was fourth there last time around. So, why you know, she's not a skier that gets worse. She's a skier that gets better. Uh, and then I'm going to put Vaughn behind her. Uh, only from the standpoint of, again, the more those Titans clash, the faster they go into the Olympic Games. So maybe that's wishful thinking on my point, on my part. Oh, if we see that happen, that will raise the stakes. All right, well, thank you for joining us uh, on today's podcast, Scott. Well, thanks for letting me be here. Yeah, next time bring some interviews. <laughs> well, I'll do my best, Steve. Yours are so good, though. <laughs>